0: I never really, like, do anything in my head halfway. Like, I don't have anything that I'm interested in, and I, like, kind of do a little bit of it. Like, if I'm interested in something, I kind of, like, go full throttle.
1: Hey, y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Josh Dossie jumped on the fast track as a journalist, and he has never jumped off. He ran the local paper in his hometown when he was 17. He covered the Donald Trump White House when he was in his 20s. Do you remember when President Trump referred to Haiti and several African nations as bleephole countries? That was one of Dossie's scoops. Now he's an enterprise reporter for the Washington Post where he writes a lot about the Republican Party but also takes on a wide range of stories in national politics and government. We talked about the mental grind of covering a president who might do anything at any time, including the time Trump announced to his tens of millions of Twitter followers that Dawsey was a lowlife. We also talk about something closer to Dossie's heart, namely his life as a long suffering South Carolina football fan. Here's our conversation. I want to start off by talking about your background a little bit, because I know there's a lot of people who think like the media elite in Washington, they all went to prep schools and they all went to Ivy, the Ivy league. And, and that ain't you. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask a little bit about your background, where you came from, what your folks did, all that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. I grew up on a farm in rural South Carolina, a town called Aner, which is about 30 minutes from Myrtle beach. Uh, the town uh, is so small it it's two stoplights and when i was a senior in high school we got a mcdonald's with a double drive-through that shut down highway 501 for days and the cops had to block traffic <laughs> it was such it was such a big occasion so that tells you the town uh a kind of a traditional farming community in south carolina my dad was a farmer and my mom was a teacher uh they still live there uh, i was home a couple months ago actually and and saw them uh and for 30 years or so my dad farmed produce corn and melons and all sorts of potatoes, different things. He's retired now. Uh, my mom's retired as well. Uh, but I grew up uh, in rural South Carolina. And then I went to college, uh, the University of South Carolina in Columbia. Uh, I'm a proud Gamecock. And then I moved to New York to work for the Wall Street Journal. And now I'm in Washington at the Washington
1: Post. And I, I read somewhere that you were editor of the paper in Aner when you were 17. <laughs> How did that happen?
0: <laughs> so that's a funny story. Uh, in high school, I Was kind of a stringer for our paper. I would write about you know high school sports and the city, the town council, and it was a three thousand circulation uh, weekly uh, in in rural South Carolina. Um, The office was in a converted barber shop, and the job of the paper you had to design it, sell ads, uh, go pick up the paper uh, from the printing uh, press, and deliver it. It was a full service operation, and. A few months before I graduated high school, uh, the man who was running the paper uh, decided to take another job. And the owners desperately needed someone uh, until they could find a permanent editor, uh, and that person was me. So I uh, slacked off in school to some degree and really spent my time the last three or four months of high school uh, running uh, the town paper. Uh, sadly, with the kind of decline of local news uh, or papers like that, it's no longer exists. But uh, in two thousand and seven, I was for a brief stint the editor in chief of the Aino Journal.
1: Obviously, you were into journalism at a young age. What was the draw for you? That's a
0: good question. Uh, there are folks who have these kind of epiphany moments where they say, "Oh, at this moment, I knew I wanted to be a journalist." And I do really remember one of those. I remember um reading the the paper when I was little. Uh, my I made my parents get a subscription to the Sun News, which was the daily paper in our area. I remember always being interested in in getting a copy of the paper in like the middle school library. Uh, and then I remember writing some stories for for the town paper as we just discussed, you know, about various events and I I thought it was really for lack of a better word, fascinating. It was just great fun to get to go up to people and you know ask some questions and write down what they said and be in the middle of everything, right? I mean, I loved like standing on the sidelines for high school football games or you know, sitting in the front row as the only reporter at the town council meeting and getting to talk to the mayor. And I think I just found it all exhilarating. And I still do, frankly, but uh, in in when I was younger, I think my first uh, appeal of being a journalist was just I liked it. I liked it. I liked every bit of it. It was just fun.
1: So, was your aim once you started doing it? Did you think from the beginning, I would like to be in New York or DC covering, you know, the kinds of stuff you do now? Was that like the target you would always aim for?
0: I don't know that I had a discrete, uh goal. I mean, I remember thinking one day I wanted to cover the White House, uh, which I w- was lucky enough and to do during the Trump presidency. Uh, I remember kind of wanting to move to a big city and to, 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 you know, to make it proverbially, but I never really had, I don't think, you know, a thing, I think I want to do X at this point in my life, right? I mean, I kind of knew I wanted to to move to New York at some point. I knew I wanted to expand and, and, and travel and try to see the world and have some, you know, neat experiences, but I don't know that there was ever a moment where I said, I want to do this at this point.
1: Do you feel like your background you know which is maybe different than a lot of the other people who are working the beat you work do you feel like it's been a hindrance in any way or do you feel like it's given you an edge in any way
0: i think it's been an asset frankly um uh, particularly covering the republican party uh i feel like i have a deeper understanding in some ways of what actual people out in the country in places like south carolina which is obviously an influential state are thinking about or talking about uh, why they may feel the way that they do. Uh, I feel like sometimes when I go back to the South for the post, uh, I get people to talk to me who may be leery of talking to another reporter. Uh, At times, frankly, I feel like I've had some luck in people underestimating me because maybe of my Southern accent or where am I from or whatever. And I think in a kind of a homogenous world to some degree, I mean, a lot of my colleagues are from different places, and I think people who are from different places really um, kind of stand out and shine. I don't know. I've I've always been like kind of proud to be from South Carolina, and I've tried to use that as a benefit instead of a detriment to my career.
1: So I want to you mentioned, you know, interviewing Republicans and the GOP and that sort of thing. And I have several questions about some recent work you've done along those lines. But before we do that, I wanna ask one question about the South Carolina Democratic presidential primary, which is now is gonna be the first one in the country in, 21, in 2024, replacing Iowa. How does that change things for the country and how, who gets elected maybe? And how does it change things for South Carolina in particular?
0: So I wanna be careful not to make predictions about things I don't know. I mean, I certainly saw in 2020, right? You saw Joe Biden, who was struggling in the early states, who was having you know all sorts of problems, and when he got to South Carolina, you know the African American vote there helped turn him around. The more moderate parts of the party, you know, he won pretty resoundingly. I remember uh, in 2020 being down there and reporting on a story, and his allies, Jim Clyburn and others, were pretty confident that South Carolina would be a bulwark against a tide that was not heading in their direction and they thought that it would be you know a place where he would he would have a resounding win where he had struggled in other places right and I think the South Carolina Democratic Party remains a little bit different than than the rest of the country a lot of folks are pretty moderate they have different opinions on social issues they are not um necessarily exactly in line with where the country's Democratic Party is. And I think in a place like that, Joe Biden did a lot better than others. Uh, And I think another moderate candidate, someone who is good at at going into, you know, African-American churches, has a track record of what they view as delivering uh, for things they need, would do better than maybe a candidate who doesn't have any history in that world.
1: You mentioned Jim Clyburn before. He's the House member who sort of appeared to get joe biden over the finish line in south carolina last time always been a very influential person I, I i would assume his status gains tremendously from south carolina being first right i
0: I think so uh i mean you certainly saw biden went down to south carolina state and spoke at commencement in orangeburg which was a big deal i think Clyburn has a lot of ears in the white house and with biden But there have been times where he's wanted things and I've not gotten them either. I think he was lobbying for, you know, a South Carolina judge pretty aggressively to be put on the Supreme Court, and he ended up picking Ketanji Brown-Jackson. So I do think there's some limits to that influence.
1: Okay, so now you're on the the enterprise beat and you're kind of coming up with a, a bunch of these stories. And one of the recent stories that you worked on was kind of the collapse of the last bit of pretense of a... You know, alliance between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor. It seems like almost a lock that they're going to face off against each other in, in the Republican primary in 2024. I know you spent a lot of time with Trump, and I want to ask about that a little later, but I wanted to ask if you've spent much time around DeSantis and what, maybe if there's anything that you've gleaned from hanging out with him or talking to people about him that may not be kind of part of the regular conversation yet.
0: So I've personally spent a lot more time with Trump than DeSantis. I've not spent any time really one-on-one with DeSantis at all. I've been in events and rooms where he's spoken, but I don't have any firsthand granular knowledge of him. Uh, I've picked up on a few things about him from the reporting. Um, I've been very surprised at how many Republican voters traveling across the country are excited about him. I think he's gotten a lot of coverage on Fox News. I think he's taking on some high-profile fights uh, that they've really liked. Um, we just did a project that actually ran today in the post about Republican voters across the country. We fanned out across the country, and the only name we heard from almost any voter was DeSantis. I mean, no one was coming up and saying, you know, I'm clamoring for Nikki Haley or this person or that person. There were people, very small populations, but it was mainly voters who either wanted Trump or DeSantis, right? When you would give them an open-ended question. So he's really reverberated in the Republican Party in a pretty remarkable way. And it's kind of astounding if you think about it, Tommy, because in 2017, you know, six years ago, he was trailing in in, by a major margin in the Florida gubernatorial primary and was begging Trump for his endorsement there are times when Trump embellishes and and doesn't tell the truth about people who are sycophantic to him but this was one of those cases where he was telling the truth I mean Ron DeSantis was absolutely you know desperate for him to endorse him and Trump did and he ended up winning the primary and then he ended up obviously becoming governor of Florida And there was kind of an alliance of convenience there uh, between Trump and DeSantis but that really has crumbled in a a pretty remarkable way as DeSantis has been more ambitious, has gone out and, you know, signaled to people that he's running for president. Uh, Trump has gotten, I don't want to say jealous, but I actually think jealous might be the best word of the adulation that DeSantis is now getting uh, in the Republican Party. And you really are seeing a break from uh, the two of them. You know, Trump now spends all day long on some days criticizing DeSantis online and making up all sorts of nicknames for him, all sorts of attacks. And DeSantis has been careful uh, to do not that. He has not attacked Trump by name. He hasn't responded to most of these things. He's taken attack that Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, took last year in basically saying, he has a problem with me. I don't have a problem with him. I'm focused on the policies and the issues. Now, whether that strategy works long term or not, I don't know. But right now, it's kind of a one-sided fight. You have you know, DeSantis and his team are doing things behind the scenes. Right, he's doing a donor retreat in Palm Beach, three miles from the former president's house. I mean, that's clearly to stick a finger in his eye. He's working donors. He's making implicit criticisms of Trump, but he's being very careful not to take him on in like a head to head mono mano way, which is what Trump is doing. And I, I I don't know how that's gonna work yet. I think time will tell.
1: So I, I think the shorthand that a lot of people who have not like dug into dissent as much yet have is that he's Trump sort of without the crazy, but he's also Trump without the charisma. And and it's hard to tell whether either of those things are a benefit or a A detriment to him as he you know tries to get voters across the country do you feel like that shorthand is accurate or or is there more to it than that i
0: I certainly feel like trump is more charismatic in retail politics in working rooms and connecting with voters one-on-one desantis i've had many people who've been in rooms with him describe him to me as harder to talk to, a little bit more stilted, not to when you, you know, seems to have an effervescence when they walk into a room to say, uh, this is, you know, this is what I enjoy about the job. Uh, so I think that's a, that's an astute point that you make. That Trump has a personality that's more catered to um, retail politics and connecting with voters. But the other point you make, I think, is also a, a really salient one. So many of the voters we've talked to have essentially said what you said. DeSantis basically gets us the good parts of Trump. He'll take on the left. He'll take on the media. He'll give us a lot of the policies we want, and he's not as hard edged. He's not someone who has to defend all of his incendiary tweets. He's not someone that I hear all my friends and family members say is racist, sexist, misogynistic. He's someone who is viewed as more acceptable to vote for. Uh, I was for the project I was talking about a few minutes ago was in the Atlanta suburbs for a couple of days and uh, talking to voters, a lot of suburban voters. And, you know, those were the counties around Atlanta are where Trump just saw big erosions from 2016 to 2020, went down 10, 15 points uh, percents in these counties in Gwinnett and in Cobb and Fulton County around, you know, right around Atlanta. And a lot of the folks said, you know, DeSantis is just better than Trump at being someone they they wanna see on their TV. Trump just wore them down, right? They were just fatigued, they were tired, they were ready for something else, right? Uh, so I heard a lot of that, that they just got tired of his shtick.
1: I wanna ask a little bit more about that in just a second, but before I get away from the kind of 2024 election, Nikki Haley, who was governor of South Carolina, I guess when you were living there, at least part of the time, has thrown her hat in the ring as somebody who wants to run for president uh, in 2024. Everybody's talking about Trump and DeSantis, obviously. What, if anything, can she do to sort of like break that you know, barrier and, and get out in front in any way? Is that even possible for her, do you think? I do know uh did you cover her much by the way I covered
0: her when she was governor uh I was editor of our college paper the daily Gamecock and then I covered her some for the local papers uh when I when I was in South Carolina and then even later when she had the Confederate flag removed from the Capitol uh one of her big controversies was she kicked off uh the University's biggest donor off the board of Trustees which caused a week's long stir on campus I've covered her in a lot of her more uh, seminal big moments as governor of South Carolina. I obviously did not cover her at the UN as ambassador. I wouldn't underestimate her. I mean, she's a tenacious politician. She has a lot of skills, I think. Uh, She uh, certainly was a popular governor of South Carolina. I think she left with her numbers, you know, 60, over 60%. Uh, She also... um, is very insular i mean she does not have a lot of people that she trusts she at least if you talk to the former advisors who worked with her they say that she's you know known to be very stubborn and she can be pretty ruthless at times i mean she had a, a very tough relationship with the legislature in south carolina now the she would say i was shattering the good old boys network or whatever but uh, there were lots of people who did not like her on the other side i mean she was a polarizing figure politically, even as she was a popular one statewide. You know, I think what will be interesting about Nikki Haley is to see what resonates with her outside of the state. Like, if you look what she did, she was not a big Trump supporter. Then she she supported others. She was critical of him. Then he named her UN ambassador. She was there. Then after January 6th, she you know was very critical of him again then she came back to being positive about him she said on camera i won't run if he runs she's obviously running now like how much do people care about that is, is, is her message um one that is going to resonate or is a sense that she doesn't really believe in anything and that she's only doing what she needs to at that moment for advantageous political gain I don't know. Right. I mean, she had pretty big crowds actually in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina in her first uh, stops. Uh, And she has something that is charismatic about her. A lot of voters say. Right. I mean, she's groundbreaking in, in many ways for the Republican Party if they chose her. But the knock on her in the state and nationally is that she uh is opportunistic and has a finger to the wind and is only looking out for her own interests. her critics have long said that
1: i guess though also i mean and i know you're just reflecting what you've heard it feels like opportunistic could probably describe most if not all male politicians as well i wonder if any of that is sort of based on her being a woman in that spot
0: i don't know the answer to that It's, it's a very fair point tommy uh when i when i say opportunistic Best I can tell though, she's the only candidate who was on camera saying, If Trump runs, I will not run for president. I will support him. And then she did. (laughs) And then she ran, right? Uh, A lot of the others were more subtle about it, right? I mean, all of these guys, as you said, are ambitious. If you're running for president of the United States, you have to have a a lot of these qualities, or they all do have a lot of these qualities. So that's, that's a fair point. I think what she's done, though, that others have not, is many public vacillations on Trump, right? She comes out after January 6, where it looks like the Republican Party is moving away from him. You know, he's under these investigations there. Um, Everyone had just seen a cataclysmic and catastrophic day for the country, frankly, and there seemed to be momentum to move away from Trump, right? Trump goes back up in the polls. Voters make clear we're not done with Trump yet. He's going to be the front runner in a lot of these polls for 2024. He's not going away. And then she starts to dance back closer to him, right? She starts saying, oh, his policies were so great. And she writes in the Wall Street Journal, oh, I just call balls and strikes as I see them. But to a lot of voters, I'm not sure if they see it quite that way. Then she says, you know, publicly, if he runs, I'm not running. I I, I will support President Trump. Then she comes out and is the first person to get in the race. like. Maybe voters will care about that, maybe they won't, but there there is no other Republican politician right now in our country that I can tell who's handled him the way that she has.
1: When we come back, Josh Dossie talks about when he first learned that covering Donald Trump would be different.
0: The first moment of his presidency, where it was maybe 8 a.m. or so on a Saturday morning, And I was like woken up to like hundreds of emails and texts and I like rolled over groggily in bed. I was like, what is going on? Like I had checked my email at midnight before I went to bed. It was a Friday night. And he had gone on this long string of tweets about how Obama had tapped his phones.
1: That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Josh Dawsey. So I want to ask a little bit about Uh, covering Trump day-to-day, which you did for a while and one thing I want to start with one thing in particular So at some point you uh, wrote a story or were part of a story involving Trump and and Bill Barr, the Attorney General and um, He tweeted and called you and your colleagues low What does that feel like or what was that like to have the President of the United States and with his 90 million followers Calling you a lowlife. Oh,
0: boy. I remember it vividly. Uh, he had been on a tear about our story all morning. And I think on maybe tweet four, he named us. And I remember exclaiming in the newsroom to my colleagues that he had just called us lowlifes on Twitter by name. We certainly got a lot of attacks that day, some crank calls, a lot of emails. Uh you know, there was some security concerns, I think, from the post perspective and from my perspective, when someone of that microphone has his, his trains or sights on you. But it, nothing, you know, that deleterious ended up happening to me personally, of course. Uh, the sandwich shop in my neighborhood named the sandwich that I always order the Low Life and put it on the menu, which was quite <laughs> a fun moment. Uh, lots of my friends, uh, you know, started calling me Low Life for a while. Uh you know what was so interesting about his tweets? So, though, we had gone over that story with the White House the night before, like we always did, and no one raised any, you know, concerns about the factual accuracy of it. And then he would go on these screeds about your stories, and you would call your sources back and say, "He's saying this is fake news. We got this wrong." You know, what's up? And most of the time, the answer was, you know, it's messaging or don't worry about it right uh and with his personal attacks, sometimes Marty Barron, our former editor was a, always said like you know we're not at we're not at war we're we're at work and that was his kind of comment and there was never real like I never wanted to get involved in a back and forth with him personally in any way because I didn't want to be the story right as a reporter You know, you don't want to be the story. You want to write the stories, right? And when someone's attacking you and you're responding, then inherently you are part of a story. But it's also weird. There's a weird tension where you also want to defend your work. I mean, if someone's saying that your story is factually wrong or is calling you names or is attacking you and you know that it's true, you don't want to lie there and let your credibility be impugned, the credibility of your publication, to let readers maybe not believe you, to let viewers not believe you, whatever. So there was there was always a delicate balance there. And I think a lot of those attacks resonated, uh, you know, with a lot of his voters and supporters. I mean, we would go to these rallies and we would be heckled and people would get it would get quite tense. Never violent, but quite tense.
1: How did that play with your like family and friends back home, people you might've known in South Carolina or whatever, were that, first of all, were they, any of them worried about you when this is happening? And secondly, did you have any folks from that you knew growing up or whatever is like, leave this guy alone. He's doing great.
0: I think most of them bought it was sort of funny and humorous. I mean, a lot of Trump supporters Don't like everything he says. They actually think sometimes he's embellishing and lying and they know it and they kind of laugh about it. A lot of my friends from the South who were Trump supporters, you know, said it to me and they were LOL or, you know, something along those lines or or jokes about me being a lowlife or how do I tell him all the other lowlife things that we've seen you do over the years, right? I mean, in a very (laughs) jocular way, right? Uh, don't think it changed their minds about Trump too much. I think most of them still voted for him. So um, if calling me a low life doesn't affect the minds of my parents and doesn't affect the minds of my aunts and uncles, I don't know what would.
1: I, I tried to imagine what it was like to be in the middle of that every day. It felt always felt like from the outside, like like there was a bus with no brakes and you just never knew it was going off the edge of the cliff every single day. Um, wh- What did that feel like doing it and did it ever feel get to feel normal to you
0: well it was certainly exhausting right i guess i go back to the moment that i remember the first moment of his presidency where it was maybe 8 a.m or so on a saturday morning and i was like woken up to like hundreds of emails and texts and i like rolled over groggily in bed i was like what is going on like i checked my email at midnight before i went to bed it was a friday night And he had gone on this long string of tweets about how Obama had tapped his phones. And we spent the rest of the day trying to report this out. I mean, the current president of the United States as a former one tapped his phones and was listening on his calls. I mean, that's a pretty explosive allegation, right? We were obviously skeptical of it because he said a lot of things that were not true, but it was kind of earth-shattering news for that day, right? And that was the thing about the Trump presidency that was the most exhausting it was, it was Saturday mornings I mean Saturday mornings were always tweet heavy unless he was out of the country you know Saturday mornings were like heavy tweet mornings uh you know Ryan Sprebus his former chief of staff said you know idle hands are the devil's workshop with him right and he would when when no when he was just at Mar-a-Lago watching television when he was waiting to go play golf he had this insatiable desire to be creating news and creating headlines, right? A lot of politicians want a message, right? They say, this week we're talking about infrastructure, and every event's about infrastructure, we're going to do this bill signing, we're going to do this ribbon cutting, we're going to be relentlessly on message. Trump had 25 messages every day, right? And his his office would say, we're talking about this, and he would be totally not interested in talking about all these other things there were lots of moments where it was just pure exhausting. I don't think it ever felt normal. I mean, it certainly, you got more acclimated over time to his rhythms, his proclivities, what would often set him off, when he was about to fire someone, you know, what he was about to do. Not predictive, but the longer you covered him, the more you kind of understood his general tendencies of where things were going. But I don't know that it ever felt normal. It felt very... um, surreal at
1: times what were the effects sort of physically and and mentally psychologically to having to like it felt it feels like the kind of thing where you're you're on edge 24 hours a day seven days a week for however many years you did it
0: mentally uh i would say it required acuity kind of at all times but it also required you occasionally take passes on stories, right? I mean, there were some times after the first year or so where I would just say, I'm not working this weekend. I mean, short of a nuclear bomb hitting the United States or us sending one, like I'm not working this weekend. Peter Baker from the Times said that with the Trump era, it was like waiting on a, stories were like sitting at a bus stop. If you miss one, another one came in 10 minutes, right? So you kind of started to understand that you couldn't be involved in everything all the time and if you wanted to have some semblance of a life you had to be willing to take some breaks and take some passes and 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 listen like i i felt incredibly lucky in a lot of ways to get to cover him for the washington post i mean it was an amazing political story it was a Seminal moment for the country, I think, in a lot of ways. I mean, it was actually a lot of times covering him. I thought like you were covering something really important. I mean, you look at his efforts to overturn the election. You look at some of the ways he tried to change the Supreme Court, change the bureaucracy of a country, change how the entire government was run, and, you know, uh, the dysfunction of some of what he did that you know led to months long shutdowns with Congress over budgets. I mean, there were lots of really important stories that affected the entire country, and it felt as it felt on, I felt honored to cover them. Frankly, so I don't want to sit here and play the world's smallest violin and to say, "Oh, I was so tired," or whatever, right? Because I I don't feel that way. I was really glad to get to do it, but there were moments where it tested your <laughs> resolve and your resilience covering him.
1: I know that Washington media world, at least the way we think about it, is it's like it's kind of this bubble where there's all this stuff going on and and much of it is very meaningful to the world outside. A lot of it is meaningful only to the people who are in the D.C. area or whatever. How do you check yourself to figure out whether you're writing things that are important to people outside D.C.? I think we do
0: stories though that have different audiences, right? I mean, there are stories that we write that are clearly about voters and the country and what's going on broadly. I mean, the Post is very interested in writing about, you know, inequality and poverty in America. Is interested in writing about major things that are happening across the country politically. We want to understand um, in deep detail what's happening in all of these states. Uh, and I think we we try to do that. We endeavor to do that. But we also write stories that want to explain to a Washington and political audience what's going on behind the scenes. Why is this policy being made the way it is? Why was this decision by the Republican Party made the way it was? And some of those stories may inherently seem more insidery to an audience outside of Washington. I think when those stories are done well, you tell them with compelling characters and with vivid details that people, you know, relate to and understand. Uh, I mean, I, I I think we we endeavor, I'm not saying we're always perfect to this, but we endeavor to write stories for an average reader who can understand them, right? Who, if you don't know anything about, you know, let's say how delegates are selected for a convention, that we can write it in an in a easily understandable and comprehensive way so you can understand it, right? Some of our stories probably have a broader national audience maybe than other stories. But I also think a place like The Post, one of its benefits on The Times this way, too, in the journal, is that, you know, the top people who run the government read it, right? I mean, I know Donald Trump read The Washington Post every morning, right? I mean, they get subscriptions all over the West Wing to these publications. So you are writing for an elite, influential audience. That, that matters and is making policy. And I think we also are aware
1: of that. I know you've been running pretty hard the last few years. Do you have time to think about like your long-term plans? I mean, is this something that you could just do for the duration or do you have other things in mind?
0: I have always felt like careers kind of work themselves out, right? I mean, advice that I got from a mentor of mine in college is, you know, if you work hard and you do good work, People will notice and you you will get to do what you want to do in life, right? And I've kind of taken opportunities as I came. I mean, in 2016, for example, uh, I was covering New York City Hall for the Wall Street Journal and was you know very happy there uh, living in New York. And I got laid off, right? I lost my job as part of 70 people or so got laid off in the same day. It was a large layoff. It felt like a very... Uh, devastating moment in life. But three days later, Donald Trump became president of the United States, won the election. It was right at the same time. I got a job offer from Politico to come be a White House correspondent. uh, And I took it and I moved to Washington. And I kind of joke with my friends now that being laid off was like the best thing that ever happened to me, right? I started a new life and a new world and it was invigorating and things worked out.
1: Speaking of careers, I read that You thought pretty seriously at one time about being a baseball umpire?
0: I did. That's
1: true. So tell me about that.
0: I even went to uh, an umpire training camp. So in high school, I um, really probably starting in middle school, uh, umpired literally games to make extra money and to just because I thought it was fun. And then I ended up umpiring American Legion games and JV games and I was really, really into it. I don't know what that says about me, but. Uh,
1: well, I was going to say, it feels like that's pretty good preparation for covering politics because you're, you're in a job where you're making close calls and people are yelling at you all the time.
0: Yeah, well, that there are probably some analogous parts, right? But I, <laughs> it's probably both a good and a bad thing, but. Uh, I never really like do anything in my head halfway. Like I don't have anything that I'm interested in. And I like kind of do a little bit of it. Like if I'm interested in something, I kind of like go full throttle, uh, which I guess is both a good and a bad thing sometimes.
1: And you've talked on Twitter uh, off and on about your life as a South Carolina football fan. I think I saw a tweet of yours where your dad took you to games in that streak where they went, uh, they lost 21 in a row. That was like, the lou holtz era right that was so it, it was 1998
0: and 99 if i remember correctly my parents had season tickets my entire life growing up and we sat in the end zone uh of a stadium Brush stadium and my dad is the most optimistic gamecocks fan ever so we could be down 62 to three and he would say well, we still got a quarter left and you'd say you know <laughs> i don't think it's going to work out but and he still has a relentless optimism for south carolina football and in 1999, I think it was 99, but you might want to check me on this. Uh, we beat um, it's like New Mexico State or Ball State.
1: I looked it up. It was it was New Mexico State.
0: And we went on the field and tore down the goalpost. And I remember <laughs> thinking, later as I pondered on that in life. What a sad uh, story of being a South Carolina Gamecocks fan that you're on the field tearing down the goalposts for beating New Mexico State. And then the next week we beat Georgia. Yes, you and did. And we tore down the goalposts again. Now that actually may be worth tearing down the goalposts.
1: Um, you talked about coming back to a couple games a year. You obviously come back to South Carolina off and on. You've lived in New York. You've lived in D.C. now for a long time. You've been all over the all over everywhere for your reporting. So when you come back to South Carolina, what is it that you miss about the place? What are there things you always do when you come back home?
0: So I come home every uh, Christmas, obviously, to see my family. Uh, I usually, in the summer, go back to Fripp Island. I don't know if you know where Fripp is, but it's off the coast of Beaufort Hill, Ned, where my college friends and I go every summer. Uh, and then I usually try to come back for a game every fall, game or two. Uh and i always enjoy being back in the in south carolina um i took a few of my friends from dc down to charleston for a long weekend to show them charleston and the state and to be a tour guide and um i liked showing them parts of the state that you know they had never seen and we spent a few days and it's a wonderful place i mean it has its problems like any state has uh but i am you know very proud to be from there and I have lots of family that's still there. I mean, my mother is one of seven, so I have dozens of cousins who all still live in in the state. You know, lots of my college friends stayed in South Carolina. I mean, I still feel like deep familial roots there in a way. Um, that has not changed. And I hope I hope doesn't change. I mean, it's it's fun now to go back. When I was growing up there, uh, I hated working on the farm. My dad made me work on his farm, picking corn and doing other things in the summer. And it was sweltering hot and you'd have to get up at 6.30 in the morning. And it was one of the reasons I knew I was going to college because I said, this certainly is not for me. But now when I go back, I take my dog back every We go back and the dog runs around the farm for several days and we're just out exploring in the woods. And it's always like, to, to unplug, my parents have like a wraparound porch at their house. And after like a few days of being there, my mom jokes, she's like, I can tell you're getting bored and you need to go back. But for a few days, it's like really nice to be totally off the grid.
1: In a way, the best compliment I can give Josh Dawsey is that he seems like a normal guy. Lord knows I would not be normal if I had to cover the Trump residency and all the fallout afterward. It has broken much better brains than mine. Doing that work and doing it well requires hustle and confidence and a competitive spirit. As you heard Josh say, it also requires a sense of when to stop for a day or two and take a break. As he talked about relaxing on the porch at his parents' house in South Carolina, I thought about how we all need to find a refuge at some point. The news of the day can be overwhelming, even if you're not the one covering it. For Josh Dossie to still be grounded and to still love the work after the last few years he's had, well, that's quite an achievement for him. And it's good news for the rest of us, too. Because the result is that we get more Josh Dossie stories. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode his show notes with more information on that week's guest. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.